Welcome to In Full Color. In Full Color is a show for creative beings, modern visionaries, and the dreamers of a more colorful world. On this podcast, we enter into a space of inspiration, possibility, and wonder, where we tap into our innate creative power together. Alongside muses, creators, and changemakers like yourself, we discuss the power creativity has to connect us to ourselves and to each other, and to change the world for the better. I'm your host, Amy Lore. I'm an author, artist of all kinds, and personal guide for visionaries who are ready to bring their inspiration to life. This space is devoted to your unfolding, to the light you're here to shine and the life you're here to live. I invite you to bring your fullest self to this moment, all that you are in full color. It was a lovely fall day when I went for a walk in Hyde Park. This is a neighborhood in north central Austin, and I was having a really great day. It was beautiful weather. I had just gotten a new client. I had just eaten some chocolate. Like, life was good. And I didn't really have anything else on my schedule for that day, so I let myself wander. And as I approached 44th Street, I saw this limestone castle, and I remembered, oh, that's the Elizabeth Ney Museum. I'd only been in once before and it was a long time ago and I felt pulled to go in. So I entered the museum and was just amazed by the space. Big beautiful windows, old wooden floors, and incredible statues everywhere. Elizabeth Ney was a famous sculptor who came from Europe to Texas back in the 1800s. And she left quite a mark in both locations. I didn't really know anything about her story, but as I was wandering around the museum, I heard the woman who was working there speaking with a few other visitors. I couldn't help but tune into their conversation and began asking some of my own questions. And I ended up spending probably over an hour there speaking with this woman, Kelly, who worked at the museum. And she told me all of these wild stories about Elizabeth Ney and her life. And I just felt like I was traveling back in time. So I immediately secured Kelly for an an interview on this podcast. And we are so lucky to have her join us today to walk us through this timeless story of Elizabeth Ney's life and work. Kelly herself is an artist and a writer. She is working as a docent at the museum as part of a sabbatical year from teaching high school physics. Simultaneously, Kelly is writing a collection of essays for a young adult audience about astrophysics, climate change, life, and love. We are super fortunate to have her and her rich knowledge to guide us through this journey. This is going to be a fun one for the history lovers, for those people who like a little bit of drama, because there's some of that. And before we dive in, I'm super excited to share with you that I now have a few open spaces for one-on-one work with me. This is for you if you have some dreams for your life of what you want to do, what you want to be. And maybe those dreams are crystal clear or maybe they're still taking shape. But if you would like some guidance getting from here to there, because sometimes it can feel a little bit tricky to cross that gap, then I absolutely recommend getting a partner to make these leaps with. And I'd be happy to be that for you if it is a fit. I typically work with folks on my eight-week visionary program. This is where we look at each area of life from 
inner self and health and well-being to our creative expression, career, relationships, and more. And we get clear on what it is that you desire to create in that area of your life. And we get aligned with it through energetic shifts and concrete actions. A lot of the people I work with have one or two big goals in mind that we work towards and also enjoy getting a boost and deepening into all areas of life because I really believe in a holistic approach where you feed one part of life and it nourishes the other. For more information about that, visit my website amyinfullcolor.com which is in the show notes for you. Hi Kelly, welcome to In Full Color Podcast. Hi Amy, thank you for having me. Mm, so we're here today to talk all about Elizabeth Nay, who I feel like most people have not heard of before. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about who she is, and then we'll go into her life story. Yeah, so I think you're right that most people have not heard of Elizabeth Nay, but if you have, mostly, um, mo- most likely it's due to her museum in the Hyde Park neighborhood of Austin. This was a studio that she built to be a place where she makes portrait sculptures. And she ended up spending most of her later life there toward, you know, as she aged, she spent more and more time there. Uh, After her death, it became a museum of her works. So the museum tells the story of her artistic career and a bit about her life and that of her husband, philosopher Edmund Montgomery as well. Yeah, walking into the museum really feels like you're walking into this living story and it's such an intricate space and very neat to see all the different sculptures from these different chapters of her life. So I would love to hear about the first chapter when she was in somewhere in Europe, I believe, um, and had a little bit of resistance towards her path. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Yeah. So she was born in 1833 in Munster, Germany, and uh, her father was a stonemason. So she had some early exposure to art, you know, via stone carving. Um, and she, when, when she turned 18, she wanted to go to art school and asked her parents for their blessing. And they were very opposed and they were a strong no. So she, uh, underwent a hunger strike. And as days passed, her parents worried, they called in the Bishop of their church to talk some sense into her. And the Bishop left the meeting with Elizabeth Nay and reported back to her parents saying, I think you just need to send her to art school. (laughs) So they allowed it. Uh, she didn't get into art school upon applying because females didn't do sculpture. Um, mm-hmm. So she applied several times, finally got in. And she was always needed a male escort to go around the campus and into her different classes. She wasn't allowed to be in the, the nude figure drawing classes um, or sculpting classes because of being a girl. So she was given a cow to use for her models. Um, But quickly, she proved herself to be really talented and ended up graduating with high honors and all that. And her career just skyrocketed in Germany. Um, So that's sort of that first chapter of of making making it through that big hurdle of not being allowed to do sculpture. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you remind me what year this was? You might have already mentioned it, but I'm just so shocked by like having to be escorted so different from my reality right let's say so 1833 she's born 1833 plus 18 Mm -hmm. yeah Um, so 
like a long time ago, but also kind of not that long ago. Um, So she was certainly someone breaking down barriers or glass ceilings, as they might say. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, And then from there, her. I, one thing I think is really sweet was her first official commission after finishing art school was the same bishop who her parents had called in to talk her out mm-hmm. of going to art school. He commissioned a St. Sebastian sculpture for the church. Um, so I think that's really sweet. And then she got a big break with philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, who at the time, like his, his philosophy is a bit grumpy and <laughs> he was known for being a misogynist. Um, so Elizabeth Ney being really like a bold character saw that as a fun challenge to approach him and try and get him to do a portrait, which, you know, she charmed, she charmed him into a yes. And then he was just enchanted by her. So he really spoke highly of her, changed his tune about women. And he, it was his word of mouth that really kickstarted her career. Mm -hmm. Um, And before you knew it, she's, you know, 30 years old and has uh, done a portrait of King George V and then uh, Otto von Bismarck ruler of Prussia, uh, King Ludwig, King Bavaria. So she was just so young, you know, and all this was happening in her career. Yeah, it sounds like she was a master of just following the green lights and following the yeses and actually maybe some yellow and red lights too. Um, But just the way that one thing really leads to the next, because if I was her looking out at my opportunity as a woman in that position in that time, I would have felt discouraged. But she seemed to just like, take one thing at a time with vision and stride. Indeed. I would say that is totally true. I think what drove that part maybe is she was just really passionate about learning about everything and the people that she sculpted early in her career. I think one of the things that she liked about that, she was really turned on intellectually loved going to intellectual salons at, you know, great thinkers homes and was super jazzed by that. So enchanted by the people that she was sculpting that she would have these like flights of vision to say, oh, this chemist is so fascinating. Maybe I should be a chemist or, (laughs) you know, she loved, she was just really turned on by learning in life. Mm. So I think that fueled that, you know, following the green lights that you talk about, no matter what's in their way. Yeah, I think you're tapping on something really important there, which is her curiosity, especially for things that might not directly relate to her goal of being a sculptor, but then somehow add to it. And I think as a just a creative human, it's really beautiful to just follow those little curiosities and those little whispers of like, hey, why don't you try knitting a scarf? <laughs> or why don't you try um, mountain biking, even though you're a writer? And just it's we never know how these things are going to circle back and add to our creative path and our expression. But I feel like they almost always do. And I think that's just a mark of someone who's very alive in themselves is just open and interested in this crazy, interesting life. Yeah, I I think what you say about following those little voices saying, Mm -hmm. why don't I try this? Um, I do think there's really something to that that. I think she's probably doing it herself. (laughs) One thing with that curiosity that fuels her, she was also fueled by the notion of continual progress. She, her motto in life is this word sursum, which in Latin translate or, you know, Latin to English translates to, to uplift. Mm. Um, She carved it on the outside of her studio in Hyde Park. 
and that uplifting nature that she would see in you know herself by by education by pursuing art by surrounding herself with great thinkers and leaders is something that she admired in others as well those who uplift so um, one of her biggest sculptures right as you walk in the museum is is Prometheus who's known mm-hmm. um, in myth in mythology for stealing fire from the gods and giving it to the humans um, and for that he was chained to a rock so she heard the big sculpture is him bound and chained to this rock mm-hmm. uh, in punishment for the uplifting act of giving fire the power of fire to humanity uh, so I love so she really honored that notion of you know, always improving, always doing more and and bringing others along for the ride, which I think is so beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you brought in that Prometheus statue because that was definitely very striking right when I walked into the museum. Yeah. And I mean, she definitely made it to the top in at least certain senses in her career in Europe. And kind of at that peak of that, I remember was her experience with King Ludwig. And the drama that came from that and surrounded him. So I'd love to hear about that little chapter of her life. Yeah. Great question. So after she's, she's, you know, really on fire with all these word of mouth praise recommendations and commissions that are coming. She had just done a portrait of Otto von Bismarck, who is the leader of Prussia, like the Northern Germany area at the time. And um, his main political agenda item was to unify Germany. Um, all these little states like where King Ludwig II was ruling was Bavaria, um, Bavaria, which is, of course, now part of Germany. And so <clears throat> Bismarck, von Bismarck wants to unify Germany. His one holdout is King Ludwig II. And so Otto von Bismarck's people have the idea to hire Elizabeth Ney to do a portrait of King Ludwig. She could, you know get on his good side. She's very charming. He would trust her and she could wish whisper messages of unification in his ear as she worked. Um, Cause you have days with the person as you're doing a, a portrait and this would be a full size portrait. You can see it in the museum. It's my favorite one. So indeed she, Elizabeth, they did that. And uh, Ludwig King Ludwig II is known as being um, mad. King Ludwig is his most common nickname you might hear, but I, I prefer the dream king, um, mm-hmm. but he was really, he really shouldn't have ever been a king um, except by, you know, bloodline as it works. But he was more interested in poetry and theater, opera, um, music. He was such a romantic at heart. He was obsessed with, you know, beauty and moonlight and swans. And um, so he had a beautiful soul, was a terrible leader. And, um, when Elizabeth Ney got to him, she was advised to memorize some poetry and that would help win him over, um, which it did worked like a charm. He was, he was enchanted too, like everybody who meets her. And, um, but she, she too was, was enamored of him and his beautiful heart and spirit. They had a close relationship of, you know, working and spending time. He, he wanted to thank her for her work and friendship with, with jewels she said, oh, no, no, people who wish to honor me don't give me jewels. They give me flowers. And so he gave her this villa to live in and do work and had a big open studio at the top. Um, and he would fill it with fresh flowers all the time. 
Wow. <laughs> right. But you but you mentioned this abrupt change in her career that's associated with King Ludwig. So after she finishes the portrait of him, which you really have to come and see, listeners. It's so cool. The clothing is exquisite. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was summoned by von Bismarck's people, probably for some sort of follow-up meeting. History is not super explicit about this moment in her life. She's not very well documented. And instead of coming to this meeting, she and her husband, Edmund Montgomery, flee Germany and come to America. Um, So that could be one interpretation of why did they come to America and settle in Mm -hmm. Texas and have the second half of their lives in Texas? Um, So one interpretation is some sort of drama with the German ruler, ruling parties. Um, Another is that her husband, Edmund Montgomery, was he was a physician and then got tuberculosis. And after getting tuberculosis, he stopped practicing medicine, really. And a tuberculosis patient needs warm air. So one of his friends uh, said, come to this place, Thomasville, Georgia, and we can, you know, intentionally create beautiful artistic lives and live in community with nature. Uh, and so they, they went, they were, they were big followers of naturalist philosophy, which was sort of like utopian stuff. And they, they didn't end up loving Thomasville, Georgia. They came to Texas. It was sort of in vogue. Texas was so wild and free. Uh, and they settled in, in a town called Hempstead, which is about two hours driving east of Austin back in Elizabeth and Edmund Montgomery's day, it was a three-day horseback ride. And she would take that journey alone on horseback once uh, once she would commute to Austin. But that's much later after they arrive in Texas. They spent about 20 years just living on this land in Hempstead. They they had two boys. Unfortunately, their eldest son um, died of diphtheria at 18 months old very shortly after arriving in Hempstead. Kind of pausing right there to say, it's also curious when she and Edmund left Germany quickly and came to America, maybe because of uh, King Ludwig drama, maybe because of naturalist philosophy and tuberculosis, warm air. Maybe also she's 37. They've been married a long time. She and Edmund have been dating since their late teens and she's 37 and pregnant for the first time. So that's kind of interesting too. Um, Yeah. It sounds like it could be all three of these things combined. Maybe there's some other information we don't have. I think there could be some other information (laughs) that we don't have. Uh, It's it's fun to speculate, but there's not a lot of um, footing for that fun speculation. But I say make it as fun as you want. Elizabeth May is kind of known to exaggerate about her her life too. So I bet she would want us to exaggerate a little bit. (laughs) She would enjoy our speculations. Yeah. Well, what's also interesting about this transition in her life is that she stopped making art for a while. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. So in Mm. those 22 years between arriving in in Texas or in America and moving to Austin to get back into sculpture, that was 22 years. She was 59 when she started sculpting again. Um, her son, her surviving son, Lauren, had, you know, made it out of the house and into college. Uh, and so she went to Austin and got a $32,000 grant from the state to, to do some portraits of, um, at that point, long dead Sam Houston and Stephen F. Austin for um, the Columbia World's exposition. And that was enough money. $32,000 is a lot now. Um, but that was enough money then to build her studio that you can come see in Hyde Park. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I didn't realize I had seen her work decades before when I was a kid and would go on field trips to the state capitol or with my family. And I always recognized the same Houston Stephen F. Austin statues. And then I saw the plaster models in her studio. I was like, that's familiar. So it was interesting that I I had already been exposed to her work. It had already been uh, a part of my experience. And then to just get this in-depth of her was cool. Yeah. A lot of people come into the museum and they're like, I've seen these before. Mm -hmm. The marble versions are in the entrance to the rotunda of the Capitol. So yeah. Gosh, that's just so interesting that she took all that time off and then this spark came back or, you know, maybe she felt that she had the finally had the energy and attention to put back towards it. Yeah. I think that's the coolest part about her. When I, I live near the museum and I would, you know, go in often and picnic in the backyard. But what really drew me to her was hearing about how she lived there. Um, It wasn't really her home. It was her studio, but she would, you know, a three day horseback ride between home and studio means you live there too. And I heard that she would sleep naked on the roof and that she would eat a raw egg and have just a little cognac for breakfast so she didn't have to do any cooking or cleaning or bed making and could just sculpt. I thought that was really cool. What a wild woman. What a wild woman. And that I wasn't until recently when I started volunteering there that I learned all this amazing stuff about her life and her work. But really what was most inspiring to me about this you know, new knowledge I got was that she was 59 when she started her art again. That's when she built this, she architected the museum, had it built and started up again and made tons of work, tons of great work. Um, So I think that's just so cool. And imagining Austin at that time, uh, that was Waller Creek runs through the backyard of the museum. And that was the city limit of Austin. There was, you know, nothing much around, a few houses. Wow. Now that's central Austin. Yeah, now it's like totally central Austin. (laughs) Well, I'm curious to how her style might be different from when she was younger in sculpting. Do you notice a difference in her work? There's, there's definitely a difference that I think is most striking is just the difference in the style of the people that, you know, who she's doing Wild West Texans in Texas and then all these, you know, Europeans, they, they look different. But, but apart from that, I think she really gained, um, and I see an enhanced look of emotion on the faces there's it's more subtle but deeper lady macbeth is her final piece it was not it's so like prometheus it's one of the few pieces that she did without a commission just a passion project of her own and the expression on lady macbeth's face is just outrageous so i think that's really what marks that second part of her career mm-hmm I remember when I visited the museum, you told me a little bit of your own theory behind her connection to the Lady Macbeth piece. Yeah, and take all of this with, you know. (laughs) We're Um, speculating for fun. (laughs) Um, But I have some, you know, book recs that I can have you guys link to if you want to know where I'm getting this stuff. Uh, But Lady Macbeth, so that's the last, it's the last piece that she worked on in her life. Um, And in the story in Shakespeare's play, you know, the, in a nutshell version is that at the beginning of the play, Lady Macbeth's husband gets a prophecy that he'll be King. He tells his wife, Lady Macbeth, and she says, Oh, great. Let's get the show on the road. I'm ready to be queen and let's kill the current King. 
let's do this. And so she starts out real power hungry. And then by the end of the play, she's like in deep regret of out, out damn spot. You know, like she's psychologically altered with this regret of killing a king. Um, but we have to remember Elizabeth Ney has a little connection to a king, King Ludwig, uh, and, and trying to bend his ear around that notion of unification, which was very popular at the time. But he did end up, after after they left for America, a few years later, he was mysteriously found dead, is how it's documented. But everyone kind of knows that he was offed, because his all of his, like I don't think cabinet is the term, but like his board of advisors, you know, they were all kind of accumulating reasons of why he should be thrown from power. So he was, you know, assassinated. I wonder how she felt about that. Does she feel like she played a role in this? Remember, I'm totally speculating here. But uh, Lady Macbeth, why, why did she choose her? But I think maybe it could have some feelings about this fraught relationship that she had with her son, Elizabeth, and her surviving son, Lauren always really clashed and it never really resolved. And she had such high hopes of motherhood. So it could have something to do with that. She had a harder time getting commissions in Texas. She, you know, that glow of her work in Europe around having all that proximity with the great thinkers of the time was gone because in Texas, the commissions she was getting were largely for people who had been long dead. So maybe it had something to do with some sort of regret. I don't know. I don't know, but it's interesting. It's a strong, it's a stunning piece. Another kind of funny thing about it is that after Elizabeth Ney died, many of her female friends, I think it was four different women, claimed to have been the the model for Macbeth. Um, <laughs> so maybe everyone did. So we can see all these pieces in the Elizabeth Ney Museum in Central Austin. And it's really quite an experience just to walk into the building because it feels like you're stepping back in time. And so I would love for you to just give us a little visual tour of the space. A lot of people don't come into the museum because it looks kind of set back in time, like you're saying. It's all native prairie grasses and plants surrounding the museum. It looks like a big limestone castle. And it's the whole city block and then adjacent to a park. So it's it's pretty stunning on on the outside, but then you come in and you're like, oh, look look what's inside. A lot of almost everyone who walks through the door is like, I walk by all the time, but I've never been in. Um, and inside, you'll see all of her, you know, sculptures that we have. It's a pretty big chunk of her collection. But one thing that is really amazing is that she was the architect of that space and she designed it with really high ceilings. There's really no bedrooms or kitchens that all came later because she was using it as an art space, not a home. But she even added in like a a loading dock. So the windows that you see right when you walk in, they pop outward and these doors can open so she can get giant sculptures like the, the likes of Prometheus in and out through there and there's trap doors where she would store clay and ladders that open out onto the roof where she would sleep and a creek that runs through the back that she dammed up herself and made a lake a pretty big one actually and people would come in canoe and she was always having lake parties one thing i think about that i think is really cool about the museum uh is the work of edmund montgomery that's on display it's really just a few quotes of his philosophical work but um I, like I, I mentioned he 
was a physician, but got tuberculosis and stopped practicing medicine. And he started being a philosophical, a, a writer of philosophy. Um, and he was mostly interested in, in human consciousness and the nature of reality and what we're doing here in these moments of in light, like light filled union with like the oneness of the universe. They, you know, and I love that, that sort of thought and writing is infused within those walls too. And so one thing that people love doing is going up the, the third floor spiral staircase into a little like castle turreted tower where he would write. It would only ever had a, a desk and a chair and a hammock and you can go up there and you can write up there. Visitors check it out. But so, so I think his, his work, the way it is present in there too, is pretty cool. Yeah. I think that's another layer of what makes going into the museum just kind of trippy almost because you already feel like you're back in time in this old structure and then there are also these almost ethereal statues and sculptures everywhere and then you read these little quotes that are on the wall that just totally take you beyond space and time for a little moment and so it's this whole experience where you can actually feel a little bit more into the vibration or the aliveness of what her experience was like you know um, having all of these influences around and there's just so many layers of uniqueness to it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I guess just tell us about if someone wants to come visit the museum, where can they find some information and uh, what are your recommendations for just the experience? The hours are Wednesdays through Sundays from 12 to 5. And it's located at 44th and Avenue G in Austin. Let me give you the address there. It's 304 East 44th Street. Um, and you can just do, it's part of the austintexas.gov website, but you can go to elizabethnay.org and um, find out even more information. We all, we're always having um, festivals and stuff too. So check it out. Nice. I will link all of that in the show notes. And then it's also totally free to get in, right? Yes. It's uh, run by the Parks and Rec Department. So the city allows it to be a free space to come visit. Okay. Awesome. And for people who are not in Austin and don't plan on being here anytime soon, would the website be a good place to find a little bit more about her? Yeah. It has some links to to history about her. Um, There's some really like kind of psychedelic 1970s biopics of King Ludwig that she shows up in. Ludwig is one of them, but they're hard to find. You can't really watch them online, but maybe your Mm -hmm. local library will have it. The Austin Public Library does. Nice. Okay, (laughs) Um, cool. But I think she deserves a, a film of her own. Kelly, one last thing that I ask my guests to leave our listeners with is a little bit of a creative prompt for this week, that whatever their creative medium or outlet is, they can uh, find some inspiration around this and create on it. So do you have any recommendations? Yeah, I think one of the most inspiring things about Elizabeth Nay again is that she got started again after 20 years of not sculpting at age 59 and then had that big span of career. So I think imagine yourself in your creative path. Where are you 20 years from now, say? What what does that look like, you know, toward the end of your life? Elizabeth Ney died 
in the process of sculpting, um, what would that look like for you living mm. at the end of your life in, in the, your creative self and work, work in that place for a few days? I love that because we've been kind of time traveling backwards in this episode and now we're going to time travel forwards a little bit and bring all of that to the right now. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. If you have not yet been to the Elizabeth Name Museum, I imagine that you would like to go by now. It truly is an amazing space with beautiful art and incredible grounds. The building is totally a time capsule. So get on over there if you are in Austin or visiting soon and someone wonderful like Kelly will be there to show you around and tell you all of the stories because there are many more than we had time to include on this podcast. If you like this episode, I encourage you to rate the show five stars and send this to that one friend who is a total history buff. I'll see you here next Friday with another podcast. Until then, keep creating, keep dreaming, keep being beautiful. Beautiful.